Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Right after January 6th, it felt like there was this moment of unity. Democrats and Republicans denounced the violence of the insurrection. But after just a couple of days, lawmakers could no longer agree on the basic facts of what happened. And so as I watched this debate unfold, I thought, you know, this is really an opportunity for the Post to fulfill what is a core of our mission, which is to tell definitive stories about the events that shape our country and our politics. Matea Gold is a national political enterprise and investigations editor for The Post. One of the things that I had in my mind was the 9-11 Commission report. I thought, what if we could do that for this? And what if we could also place into context what January 6th means to America at this moment, at a time when we're really more divided than ever? The 9-11 Commission report was intended to be a definitive retelling of what happened on that day, who the key players were, what went wrong, and what could be learned from the tragic failures of intelligence. And Matea thought we could do that for January 6th. I started reaching out to editors on different desks to ask for resources because we knew this was going to be an undertaking that would take the whole newsroom. Over time, Matea and national editor Steven Ginsburg rallied a team of 75 journalists from all corners of the newsroom, all striving to answer one big question. How did rioters overtake Capitol Police and interrupt the democratic process on January 6th? Who got this ball rolling? Who arranged and coordinated what was obviously a planned attack on the Capitol? And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. You'd have some bits of intel that would filter back to the law enforcement agencies. And then the question was, what did they do with it? They are marching through now. How did the word go out? How was it planned? How did a bunch of people show up with with, you know, with zip ties and wood to build gallows. It bugs me that we still don't know who built the gallows. It bugs me that we don't know who planted the pipe bombs. To what degree did the White House and the president himself know about the plans for this day? Reporters have also been trying to assess how January 6th has changed the world we live in today how exactly people running for political positions are trying to prevent this or are kind of denying that this happened. Are these laws that have been passed actually going to make it harder for certain people to vote? And if you can't have an election and trust that people are going to rely on the outcome, that's the path that leads to the end of democracy. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, November 1st. 
This week, we're going behind the scenes of the reporting that our colleagues have been doing for months, trying to piece together what happened on January 6th and what has happened since. This reporting is part of a new three-part investigative series from The Post, and it reveals a lot about what led up to that day and how the violence became almost inevitable, and how the spirit of the insurrection is still reverberating throughout the country. On today's episode, the red flags that law enforcement failed to pay attention to. I had questions on January 6th. Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter for The Post. And as he watched rioters storm the Capitol on TV, he started calling sources in law enforcement who might know anything about what was going on. And really since then, it's been trying to figure out how did it get to that point? How did it get to that point of here you have this iconic center of our democracy under attack and there's really not a plan for how to take it back? And there was a meeting in the newsroom, and I actually brought the notebook from that day that I had, and it's like seven pages of questions that I I came out of that meeting with. Kate, can you read some of those questions, and especially the ones that you feel like have been on your mind since then? Let's see. Here on page three, this is probably what's occupied hundreds of hours of my time since then, but why weren't these agencies seem to be talking to each other better? And I think about it like a broken feedback loop, if you will. Aaron put together a huge timeline of every piece of communication connected to January 6th. Tweets from the president questioning the validity of the election, social media posts from his supporters, chatter from law enforcement agencies, and a pattern started to emerge. And we kind of found you can go through and look at this timeline where Trump would say something and you'd have this wave of reaction to it. And after that wave of reaction, you'd have some bits of intel that would filter back to the law enforcement agencies, sometimes Capitol Police, sometimes DHS, a lot of the time FBI. And then the question was, what did they do with it? Aaron's reporting came to focus on two other rallies of far-right groups that happened in D.C. right after the election. One was on November 14th, and the other was on December 12th. They were a lot smaller. And people did get a little rowdy, but police broke it up quickly. No arrests were made, and they didn't make much news. And in a lot of the law enforcement response, we found you know, what went wrong around January 6th was so many people said, well, it's just going to be like November 14th and it's just going to be like December 12th again. But if you really look at it a little differently, November 14th and December 12th were dry runs of sorts. And they really were not just extremists coming to D.C., but they were telegraphed. I mean, these folks said, we're coming. We're coming to this many people. We're going to go do this. And then they came and they did it. Interesting. So what you're saying is that there were these two rallies before January 6th that could have been viewed by law enforcement as blueprints or like a steady escalation of what these rallies could look like and the violence that could result, but that law enforcement were not viewing it that way. Entirely. It was really kind of a fatal miscalculation, especially on the part of the FBI, because they are the principal agency charged with uh, investigating and preventing domestic terrorism. And so they really viewed this as a D.C. police problem. And when they took that stance, it was hard to recalibrate and see it as anything other than that 
there was a couple of things that really broke open for me, the reporting on this beforehand side of things. And one of those was reaching a guy named Donnell Harvin. I'm sitting outside. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Donnell was the head of the DC Fusion Center. Fusion centers were these things created after September 11th. And the reason they were created was you had tips that had been known and circulated a little bit, but had gotten passed around and dropped in between the cracks between local law enforcement agencies and sometimes federal law enforcement agencies. And so the idea was that under the Department of Homeland Security, you'd have these regional centers where somebody from the FBI and somebody from DHS and somebody from the local sheriff's office and everybody else would sit in the same room And that way, things couldn't get lost in between. And that was an idea that, like, well, on September 11th, enough agencies were not talking to each other. And that's why some of these warning signs for September 11th were missed. And so, like, we're going to find a way that's basically to encourage communication between these agencies so that they can catch those warning signs earlier next time. Right. And so in D.C., they have this fusion center, like in 80, there's 80 of them around the United States and territories. And DC is assigns an, an analyst to start looking at the chatter, the social media posts about January 6th. And this guy is a young analyst, is getting more and more worried about the stuff that he's seeing, more talk about guns, more talk about extremists. And it suddenly goes off the charts around December 19th when Trump tweets out, there will be these big protests in DC, be there will be wild, he tweets. And over the next few days, it's just this avalanche of of people talking about planning, beginning to put together road trips, everything else. You know, people signing up for caravans, GoFundMe's. And something else starts to happen, which is that they start to see groups that normally don't like each other, like neo-Nazis and guys from the Boogaloo movement or three percenters who don't necessarily have the same, some of them are just very hardcore Second Amendment rights, right? Some of them have more uh, white nationalist type of tendencies, but these groups start talking to each other. We're starting to see groups that never align starting to align and coalesce around this. If you understand radical, violent extremists or militant groups, they generally don't swim in the same lanes. They have their own lanes and pretty mm-hmm. well-established networks within those lanes, we started seeing, like, you know, neo-Nazis and armed militias start doing operational planning. And so this analyst keeps giving updates to Donnell Harvin, and Donnell has, is just getting more and more troubled by all of this. The drumbeat gets so deafening at a certain point about a week before, and that's when my lead analyst comes to me and said that he has concerns because they're starting to see threat streams Converge And Donnell can't really figure out who he's supposed to take this information to, which is bizarre considering everybody's supposed to be sitting in the same room and talking to each other. Unlike big events like an inauguration, when the Secret Service takes the lead, people were not anticipating that January 6th would be declared a national special security event. So there was no single entity in charge of all security. U.S. Park Police and Secret Service were in charge on the federal grounds where Trump spoke. Then, once demonstrators crossed city streets, D.C. police were in charge. When they reached the Capitol, Capitol police were in charge. And the FBI was supposed to be in charge of domestic terrorism and intelligence. 
all these agencies end up deciding to just have a big phone call with these fusion centers across the country. It happened on January 4th, and it was the first time that all these agencies got together to talk about an impending crisis. And so they have this phone call on January 4th. First, there's a few dozen people who come on, and that's about what they expected. But then it takes over 100, and then 200. And by or a few minutes into this call, there's nearly 300 law enforcement officers from around the country on this phone call. And this is all happening on January 4th. This is happening on January 4th, right? So two days before, and he said, we've never had a meeting where we actually all got together as a country and talked about something, an attack that hadn't happened yet. I mean, if you talk to the folks who work in these fusion centers, they feel like from their vantage point, this was an intelligent success. I mean, they actually saw enough that they had a phone call where they all talked about it, and they were all kind of raising their hands and saying, there's something here. So if all these people thought that this was a big intelligence success, then what went wrong? It's a long list, but if it can be condensed, there was a real failure to operationalize this intelligence. We have found that there were so many warnings that went into the FBI. There were warnings that came from academics, from researchers, from former national security officials, from sitting members of Congress, from confidential informants who were in with the militias. There were warnings from social media companies. So many warnings coming through the fusion centers, in fact, that they said, we can't handle this. Start sending them directly to the FBI in West Virginia, their analysis center out there. So there were so many streams of warnings coming into the FBI. The D.C. Fusion Center locally here was able to look at this pile of warnings and, to a degree, operationalize it. They were so worried that they actually called a meeting of hospitals uh, two days before January 6th, and they said, we think there could be a mass casualty event in D.C. in two days, and we uh, would like you to start initiating protocols to empty your emergency rooms and to stock up your blood banks. Wow. What what was your reaction when you heard that? Like how much they were preparing for something awful to happen? I mean, that just kind of puts, you know, shivers down your spine to hear something like that. That somewhere out there, there was this level of concern that, I mean, the people were just couldn't sleep. You know, the night's heading into January 6th, afraid of what was going to happen. Fusion centers have never been very highly respected uh, within the intelligence community. It's really just open source information they're looking at. And I think a lot of the intelligence agencies believe that if it didn't come from their own agents, didn't come from you know their own well-placed sources, then how could it really mean anything? But there was a, a value to the body of the open source intelligence that existed leading up to January 6th. And it was enough for, you know, like folks at the Fusion Center here in D.C. to do something about it. And so what could have other agencies done if they had been looking at this in a different light? And I think that's a a really good question for what the country should be looking at after this. Some of the people that we've interviewed in this process, they're angry at the inability of, say, the FBI and others to look at these threats and open domestic terrorism investigations into people who are saying things online that if they had a Muslim name 
probably would have ended them in hot water long before they showed up on the steps of the Capitol. If you look at some of the indictments that have been handed up over many years since, since September 11th, there were things that were said online that weren't as damning as what some of these rioters had said in the weeks leading up to January 6th. And yet, you know, there was a real reluctance on the part of law enforcement to call it anything except for First Amendment protected speech. There is no real corollary in the law to the way that, say, the FBI investigates a foreign extremist versus someone who is a domestic extremist. And that's an area of the law that I think after January 6th here probably needs to be looked at. After the break, what it was like to be inside that failure of law enforcement at the Capitol on January 6th. We'll be right back. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. What you ended up with as a result of a lot of these breakdowns on the law enforcement side and intelligence side heading into January 6th was 1,200 Capitol Police officers at the Capitol and nearly all of them having no idea about what they were about to walk into. And you had then uh, hundreds more D.C. police officers who come towards the Capitol with all of them hearing essentially these calls of last resort, officer in distress, like the worst call you get if you're a police officer. There's been one officer in particular who has been gracious enough to meet with me many times. My name is Captain Carnesha Mendoza, and I've served with the United States Capitol Police for 19 years. So for Captain Mendoza, like, how did that day start? She was going to work the night shift, which was supposed to be the worst. The day, they weren't worried so much about what was going to happen on the, during the day on January 6th. They thought they would devolve after dark and there'd be bands of the worst elements running through the streets of D.C. And those would be the ones that they'd have to defend the Capitol from. So she was home. She wasn't going to go in until three o'clock in the afternoon. So she's sitting at home and feeding her 10-year-old son meatloaf because he's going to be heading off to be with a babysitter for the rest of the night. And a call comes in from a colleague of hers, and she says that things are bad. And then she gets a call a few minutes later, things are really bad, you better come in now. And so she drops, you know, what she's doing and literally walks out the door and starts driving towards the Capitol. By that point in time, DC police are setting up roadblocks and she like drives up around, flashes her badge and they let her go through. And she starts hearing these 1033, these calls of officer in distress from the Capitol Rotunda. What is she thinking when she hears that? I mean, it just literally turns around 180 and head starts heading the other direction. She drives up and parks as close to the Capitol as she can. And an officer outside of a door nearby says, where do you want to go, Captain? She's like the rotunda. And so he swipes his badge and lets her in a door on the ground level. She comes inside and she only makes it about 
10 feet before she realizes there's about 200 protesters already inside and blocking her way toward the rotunda. She thinks to herself, I'm going to find a safer way. I'm going to turn around and go back the, the other way. And but in, the, in just the moments between when she encounters those protesters and turns around to go back out the door, they've overrun the door on the outside. So now she's trapped. Trapped between the protesters on the outside and the 200 protesters on the inside. And she tried to hold a line there in the rotunda to keep riders from going deeper into the building. She ended up taking command of the officers in the rotunda because she was the highest ranking officer there. I witnessed officers being knocked to the ground and hit with various objects that were thrown by rioters. Officers began to push the crowd out the door. After a couple hours, officers cleared the rotunda, but had to physically hold the door closed because it had been broken by the rioters. Officers begged me for relief as they were unsure how long they could physically hold the door closed with the crowd continually banging on the outside of the door, attempting to gain reentry. Later that night, she's a big Fitbit believer and tracks everything, her sleep and you name it, with her Fitbit. And her Fitbit that night said she'd been in, a, in an intense workout for four and a half hours, pretty much from the time she arrived at the Capitol for the next four and a half hours. So she gets home that night, and what is she... What is she thinking? Like, how does she reflect on what happened this, that day? And who does she blame? These officers are loath to say that this was one person's fault or one group's fault. They're angry. They're upset at having gone through what they went through. It has been especially hard for someone like Mendoza, who was a soldier in the Army. And you know, on September 11th, was stationed at the Pentagon. And there you had a situation where... We all knew, the, the whole country knew we, were, we had a foreign enemy who had attacked us. And here, it was like she was looking out in the crowd and seeing people wearing army fatigues and wrapped in red, white, and blue and attacking her. In my nearly 19-year career in the department, this was by far the worst of the worst. As an American and as an army veteran, it's sad to see us attacked by our fellow citizens. I'm sad to see the impact this has had on Capitol Police officers. And I'm sad to see the impact this has had on our agency and on our country. That's one of the things that's been really hard for these law enforcement officers to reconcile. Who is the enemy? Like, who are they, who are they fighting against? And, and where do they go from here? What kind of effects did this have on Captain Mendoza in the days and weeks and months after? Captain Mendoza physically was dealing with recovery. She sent several of her officers out to get decontaminated, if you will, during the day on the 6th. There was mace, there was pepper spray, there was some kind of tear gas type substances that were out there. They're, they found cans of brake fluid and uh, other mechanical fluids that seemed to have been used to make sure that the pepper spray stuck to the officers' faces. Oh my God. Mendoza, she came home after midnight, collapses, doesn't even really take a shower Next morning wakes up and feels her face tingling, burning almost. And it just gets worse during that day and it gets worse the next day. And over the next couple of weeks, it starts to wake her up at night. And so she got a deep skin infection underneath of the chemical burns and had to eventually be on six different medications, one to burn off the outer layer of the skin and have it regenerate. She's had this kind of running 
text message thread with another friend of hers from work. And they kind of would ping back and forth some of the things that they'd been dealing with. She wrote, just woke up. Three bad dreams later and the right side of my face still hurts. I woke up with my heart beating so fast I could barely catch my breath. Just stress, I guess. I had a nightmare last night that we were in one of the buildings and CS gas was pouring in on us and we couldn't get out. She tried to really shelter from everything that happened. This 10-year-old, to the point where she didn't even tell him about her experience on January 6th. She went home and tried to pretend like at least at home it didn't happen. It hadn't happened. And he's a 10-year-old. He's, you know, like every other 10-year-old last year, taking classes from home and sitting in front of a computer and every now and then starts Googling his mother's name and seeing pictures of her having been in there on January 6th. And then after her testimony, when she tells what really happened, it was an account that he had never heard from her. And so the 10-year-old comes out and asks her, Mom, when are you going to get a new job? What did you think when he said that? You got to know Mendoza and you got to know the kind of army kid that's in her. And, you know, that's my job, son. You know, she kind of gave back to him. And what do you want us to be homeless? And about as quick as she said it, regretted what she'd said to him. I've been left after this project to think about the many dimensions of these law enforcement officers' lives, not just what they deal with when they go to work, but what they're dealing with at home and and uh, the, the toll that's taken on not just them, but their family members as well. She is angry, and she's told me that she's angry. She channels that anger in a different way, though. She has written on her wall in her office on a whiteboard, tragedy will not be the end of our story. Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter with The Post. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff and edited by Ariel Plotnik. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. To see The Post's full three-part investigative series on January 6th, head to the link in our show notes. The kind of reporting that you hear on our show is only possible because of our subscribers. Right now, you can try The Post for just a dollar a week, which gets you unlimited access to everything we publish. Learn more at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. 